Welcome to this week's edition of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. Our first podcast was less than two months ago, and since we started, we've had an impressive array of intriguing guests and free-flowing conversations. Hi, I'm Dustin Planelt, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie or a Netflix series. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show this evening with this week's special guest, Dr. Douglas Craig, a police forensic psychologist. And in the studio with us is my friend, Oren Stewart, host of The O-Factor and our special sponsor, George Beck from the POI Institute. Hello, Oren. Glad to have you along. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. We're broadcasting, of course, from the Alston Carlisle studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. POI is a private holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on the Baja California Peninsula. Get a safe, effective start on reclaiming your life at POI. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. And tell them Life's Tough sent you. Now, let's introduce our special guest, Dr. Doug Craig, a police forensic psychologist. Doug has dedicated his professional career to developing expertise in psychological assessment an area that ranges from workers' compensation evaluations to interventions for occupational injuries. He has also focused on delivering services to first responder communities. After an early career position as a seasonal police officer in Ocean City, Maryland, he headed to Chicago and pursued an advanced degree in clinical psychology. He ultimately earned a doctorate in that discipline and subsequently attained diplomat status or advanced certification in police psychology through the Society for Police and Criminal Psychology. Doug spent nearly 14 years in Illinois. He served as a consultant to numerous law enforcement agencies, including the Chicago Police Department. As an associate professor, he taught tactical psychology to police officers and developed a master's level counseling program in forensic psychology. He returned to Maryland at the start of 2016 to join the staff at a consulting firm specializing in providing psychology-related services to public safety personnel. Welcome to Life's Tough, Doug. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Yes, Oren, glad to have you. Man, this is going to be fun. We're yes, going to be I, talking to somebody, and hopefully he gets in my head. And Oren, I don't know if you can let him in I'm, yours. I'm, I'm definitely. Yes, All right, indeed. We're, we're going to dig in. The analysis has already started, gentlemen. <laughs> All right, yes, good. So how big oh. of a field is forensic psychology? It, it's a pretty small field, actually, and, and it's actually really unfortunate. So there are no APA-accredited doctoral programs in police forensic psychology. So most police or forensic psychologists end up doing that just by specialty after they go to school. So, wow. a, so there, there are only a couple hundred of us nationally. Wow, is that right? So how did this start? Well, it, it actually it's a really interesting uh, story because it started through my own failures. And uh, yeah, I got lots of them. I tell Warren every week. I'm quite quite the failure if you ask everybody around me. Success comes from failure, right? Absolutely. And and it really put me on my path. So uh, as as the introduction said, I'm former seasonal police officer in Ocean City, just kind of a knucklehead college student, didn't really know what to do with my summers and applied, said being a cop would be really a fun gig. And but concurrently, I was majoring in cultural anthropology, which I think gave me some unique perspective. Anthropology, interesting. Yeah, definitely. First graduating class, UMBC. And, really? And yes, oh, that's, that's great. Congratulations. And and so, it, it, 
experiences being a police officer really uh, opened my mind to the realities of law enforcement, opened my mind to some of the struggles between the community and law enforcement, and particularly interested in a lot of the dynamics of aggression and violence and and uh, you know law enforcement's role in terms of mediating that, like domestic violence cases and things like that. I applied to uh, graduate school in Chicago, ended up getting in, ended up uh, attending. And uh, when I got to the failure part was when it was time for me to actually start my clinical training, I applied to sites that weren't police related. Hmm. And, and, and I didn't get accepted because here I was. They didn't this, let you in. They didn't let me in because, uh, you know, college counseling centers, uh, prisons, things of that nature. And I, I looked like a cop back then. So what is the what is I was the cop look? You what oh, that look yeah, right? Tell us, to, define for those of us that don't know cops. Oh, the, the haircut, right? Okay, you got the high and tight, and it's just kind of the way you you, you talk, the way you interact, the, the, the way you kind of approach folks. And Are you telling me that you're intimidating? Because I'm a little scared right now. I can be. You had to turn it down a little bit. Yeah. Since you've uh, gotten into what you, I, I remember you now. You were that officer in Ocean City, Maryland, that said to me, "Hey, stop throwing sand at people." I'm like, oh, "I'm sorry." <laughs> I thought everybody did that. When they're 15. Probably more that officer saying, "What was in that cup?" What was in that cup? Right. <laughs> but but so I I ended up not getting accepted into the practicum sites, the clinical training sites I applied to, and then there was one that was available after everyone had matched, happened to be with the Chicago Police Department. Wow. And I interviewed there. I was hired on the spot. And, and in fact, well, I was accepted on the spot. And my experiences, uh, coupled with just my interest in, in general and assessment, uh, you know, it, it really was just kind of a perfect match and just amplified my, my interest and, and, and my dedication to the field since then. Wow. That's amazing, man. I, thank you for even sharing that part of it. Um, when you think back to when you first were a police officer, mm-hmm. what was it that made you say, you know what, I Somewhere down the line, I want to make a change. Oh, I, I think it was. I mean, there are some vivid experiences, as, mm-hmm. as all of us have. But uh, but there are some really noteworthy experiences, particularly domestic violence cases. Gotcha. I, I ended up being um, very good at, at, I don't want to use the word interrogation, uh-huh. but, but interviewing alleged offenders. Okay. Or you get a call from a civilian and they say, okay, you know, this couple is, is, is fighting and we need the police to respond. You get there. Woman has hair pulled out in her in her hand, oh, bruises wow. on her face, and hmm. and she ultimately says, "Well, no, nothing happened here." I mm. said, "All right, man, come here." And you know, I kind of pull the guy out, yeah. kind of talk to him, and and talk to him like a human being. And, yes. and what eventually happens is, is that he goes, "Yeah, things got a little bit out of control, and and I did this and I did that." And then I'm like, "All right, man, well, this is what I have to. Do. I got to do this. You got to turn around, put your hands behind your back. You're you're under arrest." And, 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 you know, it's just really fascinating to, just to, to see the, the dynamic of, of the survivor, the domestic yeah. violence survivor saying, denying it to the police, because ultimately that is just the ultimate point of vulnerability. Sure. So true. Defender, well, for them, they have a bully. Yeah. yeah and much. how do I, how do I deal with this? Yeah. Well, they, and, and in Ocean City in particular, right, it's a vacation town, right? So, so not only do they perhaps have a bully, but they also know that bullies can get out of jail and that bully's coming home. Uh, and it gets really, really awkward at that point. Yeah, and coming from a family where there was domestic abuse, where my father had hit my mother, you know, one of the things that she w- must have struggled with was this, what do I do? Do I call the police? And if I call the police, there will be a consequence to it. Yeah. And so it's that struggle that when you are the officer on the scene and you know that you are leaving a home where there's just such dysfunction, knowing it will probably happen Again, it may not happen to the same magnitude, but how does somebody go back to the way they were? And more importantly, how do you, or as you were a police officer, how do officers deal with this? Because you get the best of me and you get the worst of me. Yeah. It, it, it's a challenge. And, and that's really what fueled, I think, my, my role in intervention with police officers ultimately. And in, in, in that, uh, you know, seeing the negative situations that police officers go through day in day out every single shift yeah the unpredictable nature of it is it, it just really has an adverse impact yeah on just the officer's perception of 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 relationships of others it, it is a a, a, a it, it's a very difficult experience yet at the same time you focusing objectively is it it, it it can really lead one to become more cynical more uh uh, you know, distrusting, and because ultimately, you know, the the information they get from from survivors, mm-hmm. from abusers, from alleged defenders, etc., rarely has validity, right? So, so wow. the, yeah. How do you see through that? I mean, I it's a challenge. Ask, yeah. We were talking offline about 
well, what happens when you don't really know somebody? You think you do. And the problem is when there's a new relationship, in particular, everybody's on the honeymoon. And then what happens when the honeymoon's over? When the phase goes. When the phase goes. Yeah. So in your journey and, and, in, and in the life that you've chosen, or, or in this case, not the life, the, 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 the career and field, yeah. how do you determine who is the one telling the truth, who is not? And then knowing always that the truth is always stranger than fiction. And it's always somewhere in the middle. Say three sides to a story, right? Well, there are always three sides to <laughs> yeah. a story. And, 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 you know, to be honest with you, I'm, so I'm no longer law enforcement. It's been, uh, you know, I've been removed for a good 19 years wow. since I've been sworn. And I have been a police psychologist since then. And so and in my role, on one hand, when, when I'm doing a, an assessment, I use measures that actually have what are called validity scales. I was, I was and, just going to ask so, you that, more validity. So, so there yeah. is science behind it, and especially when it relates to like workman's compensation injuries and things like that, that really comes into to, to play into to, to the decision-making. However, when, when I'm actually seeing a first responder for more like therapy, uh-huh. you, that, that's very different because ultimately the, my goal is, is to say, all right, I know already without you telling me that that life's been tough. Yes. Right? Yeah. I, I, I know that there's been a lot of nasty stuff that you've seen because every first responder has seen a lot of nasty stuff. Things you can never un- unsee at all. Well, you, well so not so turn it off. The, 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 the neuropsychology behind negative experiences is actually really interesting because uh, the, these negative experiences, especially what we call acute stressors, a lot of folks call them traumas. I, I, we I were just talking to, about that, right? Yes. I, I try to stay away from the word tra- trauma because it's associated with PTSD. Yes. And trauma is not PTSD. But when we have these negative experiences, it, uh, it stores two areas in the brain. One, our normal area, our episodic memory, right? So it's, it's kind of where we have uh, just our general memory and our experiences. And the other one is kind of stored in the limbic system, and it's kind of where trauma memories tend to be uh, really attached to, to our emotional reactions. So if we go through our work lives and day in, day out, where we're responding to these, this, this, this roller coaster of, of emotion, it is really difficult to maintain composure long term. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can't lose composure as a police yeah. officer right there in, in, in the midst of Well, remember, of a, we expect you to be perfect. We a, expect absolutely. law enforcement to always be at their best, even when they get the worst of us. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's the unfair part about, you know, the, uh, I'll say relationship that has to, you know, come about. So I always, I've always wondered um, from your standpoint as an officer, well, prior officer, mm-hmm. um, how do you um, break it down and get, a, you know, get away from it in order to be able to get back to life for yourself? Well, I, I, well, I think, you know, to be honest with you, I, I use a lot of my background as, as, as street cred uh, okay. for, 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 for working with, with cops. Gotcha. And uh, so, for example, one thing that uh, I also do in my work is I do a lot of officer-involved shooting contacts. Oh. And, and so officers who are involved in shooting and, and actually at my firm, you know, we have a lot of a local presence, but we also have some national presence. We have some federal presence. And, and, and when an officer is involved in a shooting, it, it, it can be really, really stressful. And, and so, so how did they leave work at work? I mean, I can tell you being in business and, and talking uh, for, for Oren and a couple others here in the studio, I bring my work home. Even when I say, oh, no, I don't. I go, of course you do. We always do. Yeah. And so how does, how does law enforcement or somebody in a position of that sort of power and responsibility, how do they maintain a healthy, a healthy work life and balance at home life? Yeah. It's tough. And, and, and it's tough, and, and there are a lot of uh, good cops out there that, that are, are struggling right now, maybe even listening right now, that, that, uh, that are having difficulties with that. Because it's very difficult to come from, let's say, a, a, a near-fatal car crash that was gruesome and gory and EMS and fired, responded, and, and then, you know, the, the law enforcement part is, is done. You go write up your report, you go home, go to your young kids. It's, it's, it's kind of difficult to turn that off. And so unfortunately, and, and this is where uh, cops can, can really into trouble is, is, you know, maybe, maybe they turn to a little bit more to, to what we call maladaptive coping, emotional suppression, avoidance, denial, substance use and abuse, those kinds of things that, that really uh, leave these, these natural emotional reactions unresolved. Yeah, and then obviously leaves an impression on the community that they don't always appear to be very approachable. Yeah. But at the same time, if you lived one day in the world that they get to see, where they get the worst of humanity, would you be normal? So true. Or would you be outgoing? Would your light burn as bright? Yeah. Would you be a beacon that people go, I want more of you? It would be impossible because 
that will absolutely metastasize into other areas. Yeah, because that's, I always think, and I want to read a question actually. Okay. Um, how do you decompress after dealing with trauma that you see, you know, with people that you experience um, having to interact with? And I know we've been talking about it a little bit, but like uh, Dustin was saying, it's, it's something that is uh, never really considered that you all are getting the worst of everybody. You know, and um, unfortunately, we say the worst, but it's a little bit of both, but it's probably more of that because you're coming to address a situation, right? Yeah, I, I mean, and, and when you say you ask again, I'm, I'm no longer. I'm sorry, I keep saying yes, exactly. So, so uh, you're saying speaking on behalf of yeah. those. Speaking on, yes. behalf, speaking on behalf of those yes. currently in that community. Yeah. Well, speaking on I mean, creating balance. And, gotcha. and uh, you know, so when you get and so this is again, the, the, the psychology behind the, the what I call the emotional roller coaster or the emotional tornadoes is hey when when you got that that stress that emotion that's going on you got to get it out yeah so a lot of uh, great at coping outlets is actually these outlets for frustration in fact I have an and entire, what sort of yeah what sort of outlets so how would you now we have audience an audience around the world and there's many law enforcement that will be listening in how do you or, or what sort of advice can you give them on that well I, I'm, I'm actually going to go back to, to a quote from a man, Sigmund Freud. Okay, the guys Please do. Yes. associated with some wacky, wacky stuff, right? So, that, like serving, you know, doing cocaine, serving uh, <laughs> some, some things we would agree to. to think. But at the time, <laughs> to him, well, he believed he had something that was well, it was right. revolutionary. Yes, it was. But he said this quote and is profound, and I want everyone to listen to it. He goes, "Unprocessed and unresolved emotions never die. They come out in uglier and unrecognizable ways." A profound quote that's relevant to anyone and everyone. So when true. You, yeah. When you experience a bad situation, if you don't process through it, you don't get over it. It's kind of like oil that that it bleeds into other areas of life. So when you experience a natural emotional reaction, whether you're out on the streets as a civilian or in uniform as a as a first responder, what happens is is that you have these natural emotions that you need to get out. Freud would call it catharsis, right? Yeah, so catharsis, yeah. a, a simple outlet for frustration, hitting up the gym, mm -hmm. going out for a run, man, talking about it, like talking about it sincerely. I'm not and do you find that they're more, again, within law enforcement, is there this feeling of shame or I need to be tough? Yes. Really? And yes. is that learned behavior? Yeah, learned is, is that is kind of the, well, they're used to the, I mean, not necessarily good old boy, but they're used to that that good old club. Like, here's how we've always done it. Well, yeah. when, when you respond to, to really uh, stressful situations, Dead children, um, you're seeing gory everything. scenes, yeah. and and you know, and, and and when you're there and you see an injured child because of a domestic violence incident, you you can't just step away and 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 you know you know break down, right? So it's a, a learned behavior because yeah. the ta you need to focus on the tactical objective. If you're in the middle of a firefight, which is I'll be pretty pretty rare, but if you are in the middle of a shooting and you experience a natural stress reaction. Guess what? You can't really focus on that because you got to focus on the imminent threat. Yeah. You got to focus on threat to life, threat to your brothers and sisters, threat to the community. And and so so over time, over one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand adverse experiences, unfortunately, maladaptive coping takes place. Things are pushed down, things are avoided, but they're not resolved. And yeah. that's where the, Freud really becomes that, comes. That's relevant. where that quote comes. Yeah, because right. from from the perspective of those not in law enforcement, it there comes a point where you feel that they really lack empathy and it's not that it's more, they become a bit desensitized yeah, a little and numb. that is the coping mechanism. And so that leads me into, I had sent you over uh, one of the stories, uh, the stories that we share in the book, uh, this, this moment in my life in October, 1987, where my father had led the police on a high speed police chase. And so from the perspective of the police officer, officer Godnick that day, tell me what would have been going on in, in his mind as he saw a four year old boy, bouncing in the seat in front and the car that he's trying to stop. I mean, the, the, the fear for, for, for you would be unimaginable, right? I mean, so an unrestrained four-year-old bouncing around and, and uh, going on off-road and, and a high-speed pursuit after the driver just struck the vehicle, I mean, that, I mean the, the anxiety would be very, very high. Right? And, and I would imagine that would be primary objective, not even catching the driver. Right? The, the, the objective yeah. would be let me make sure uh, this child does not uh, get severely injured. Yeah. Now, it, when it comes to children, is there some other level of much like when there's a cop involved? Do you find that you find that law enforcement tends to to react faster, quicker when there's I don't know if the words APB, but when it's put out that that kids are involved? And I'm talk, talking about that that moment that he would have told there's a child. 
I mean, I I would have. I, I don't I don't know if if, if it would be more or like a, like a, like like they they would respond quicker. But I think it would be more personal yeah. because I just think as people in general, when we see that a child is in danger, we would want to help. Right. Like an instant type of uh, addressing the issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, do you see any trends right now going on within the cases or some of the people that you're talking to? Meaning where, where they get their information from. You know, tell me what you mean more about trends. Uh, trends in terms of maybe an ideology or a thought process, something that everyone believed worked in the past that you're now finding where there might be another way of doing it, a, a, different, um, a different avenue to explore. Yeah, Great and, question. And, well, I, I actually think this uh, relates very similar to a presentation I just came back from. Uh, so I was out in California last week talking on the issue of trauma not equaling PTSD. And, and that is to say that uh, very commonly now when we, when we experience a bad situation, automatically there is an association that, oh, this is traumatic. And while it may very well be traumatic to that individual, unfortunately with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, just being out there and just kind of everyday kind of diagnosis du jour, what happens is, is everyone says, okay, if you have trauma, you have PTSD. And, and that is a serious issue because what it leads to is, is then even though you, an individual experiences a legitimate trauma, mm-hmm. what, what, what happens is when they think that they have PTSD, that, that creates a much more amplified uh, self-perspective of, of being injured, being injured emotionally. And just like kind of responding, this is where I was fascinated as a police officer, responding to domestic violence cases, the, the physical violence heals pretty quickly usually, it's the emotional impact the that, internal, that, yeah. that, that well. is really difficult to get away from. And so when we see ourselves as, as having like post-traumatic stress disorder, as opposed to we experience a really nasty, shitty situation that has, uh, have, that has natural emotional consequences, it, you, the, the change in perspective can, can go a very long way. It's really important. And so I was presenting actually at a medical conference to mostly physicians that that, that see a lot of occupational injuries is saying, we need to make sure we do not pathologize the normal. Yeah, Bad situations happen. And, and you know what? It, it, it's really important to, to process through those and to talk about it. Because PTSD is a weighted label, you know, when you think about it, when you hear it. And, um, and I like how you said it. If, if it's the first thing that somebody is um, uh, labeled, then what do they do with it? You know, how, the, how, do, how, how are they able to process it without thinking that it's really something that's wrong? Yeah, where do you draw you know, that? Do you how draw do you draw line? that line? Yeah. Well, and, and because well, PTSD has, has a, it's, a, it's a cluster of symptoms. Only yeah. one of the criteria is, is to experience, a, you know, a threat of, uh, of, of, of injury to mm-hmm. self or others, you know, what we call, quote unquote, a trauma. There are other clusters of symptoms that, that need to be present for a certain period of time for it to be considered to, to be a clinical diagnosis. But what I find is, is that it's really important to, to explore the, the impact because no two individuals, PTSD is going to be the same. It's yeah. kind of like a quote I used to always tell my students. I would say, treating unequals as equal is the most unequal thing you can do. Yeah. And, wow. and, and it's right a well said. Well, <laughs> it's, you know, as I found, it's biological, physiological, yeah. and social in nature. That you have to add and those components together to have the same outcome. Absolutely. And, and we, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. So it is uh, relatively meaningless in a therapeutic dynamic to focus and put everyone at the same level. Great point. We need to meet with people where they're at. We need to talk about their feelings and how it's impacting their particular attachments and relationships and goals in life. And, and when we can do that on a one-to-one basis, that's how real treatment is done. But if we just kind of throw out labels here and there, you have PTSD, you have PTSD, all it does is creates a system of impairment. So and, true. And, and, yeah. and it's not healthy. Yeah. So now what is the, what is the way or how does the community perceive someone in your position? It's, it would be for some quite odd and others probably quite, uh, maybe, maybe quite healing. Well, it, it, it depends on the context, right? So if, if someone is mandated to see me, it's really interesting because I do a lot of things, something called fitness for duty evaluations. So Please explain. That, so yeah, dig fitness, into that. So I, am I there yet, Norrin? Have I <laughs> no, ever got to the fitness for uh, uh, you or me? Fitness for duty. Neither so one of us. It, it oh, is man. an uncomfortable situation, man. Because what it is is that when an employer has some concern about the psychological fitness of an employee, 
It could be a first responder, it could be a secretary, it could be a teacher, it could be, be whatever, but there is concern uh, for someone's capability to do their job based on a psychological factor. And it's, it's interesting because superficially, okay, the, that could be terrifying for, for the employee. But what it really boils down to, and this is really interesting because in my own narrative, you know, I was a police officer because I really wanted to advocate. I kind of wanted to be out there. I wanted to be on the front lines. But the fitness for duty evaluation is an advocacy role too. And it's not just an advocacy role, let's say for first responders for, for the community or for the department. It's an advocacy actually to identify potential pain that an employee is going through and, and to kind of just call that out there and say, man, this needs to be addressed because you know what? You're going to get fired if you don't. And, and what happens when employees get fired? It actually causes more it's stress. It's going to cause even more. And, and, and then, of course, how is that stress process if they're not processing it already? So I get to say, I mean, it's a really uh, privileged position where I'm in because everyone I get to meet with initially come in, you know, the, the, the papers are shaking. They're, they're really scared. My job is on the line. Yeah. But the outcome tends to be, well, they, if they're not fit for duty, the outcome more often than not, 90 plus percent of the time, they, they go get some some treatment. And they, how long does it typically take within the community if to finally get to that spot where they're tired of being tired or someone else says, look, I'm tired of dealing with you? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's months. You know, in, are, you, are you referring to more of like treatment? Like how it, long it is can, treatment? Yeah, it can be either treatment or the, the point where someone gets to saying, I, I need help. Well, what do you typically see within uh, first responders? Uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate because it's... It, it's uh, uh, a lot of times when I see first responders, it's the, the, their last straw. I'm going to give this a shot. And you know what? If this doesn't work, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a very, very scary situation. And, and, and of course, um, there, there are suicide factors and, sure. and, and issues and things of that And that nature. probably comes with, I have to imagine, if you're taking somebody's ability away, there yeah. must be the thought of certain threats that, or at least... The, the, the concept of, hey, look, you realize what you're doing to me. Well, the data shows that the suicide rate of, of police officers and first responders is not that too far off from, from the general community. But if you think of it from a psychological perspective, if someone's job is on the line or if they're coming to, to a, a therapy dynamic, which is different than an assessment one, then it, it, they, they get to the point where they, you know, they, they are so impaired that they want to leave something that they've dedicated their their total identity to for so long, it can be, it really reflects, I think, the depths of where they're at. And so what don't we know about first responders? We have this opinion, those of us that aren't in it, what don't we know about them? Well, that the, the system is really stacked against them, right? So their job is defined by negative experiences that most folks don't go through in life, and is defined on a daily basis. It, it's, it's judged daily. Yeah, they, actually, well, judge, probably judged by the minute or by the case. Say, exactly you, by the case. I was thinking that. Yeah, you, you don't do the paperwork right. Someone says, "How dare you not do the paperwork right?" Absolutely. So you're you're you're, you're judged daily, but at the same time, you go through some really rough spots uh, on on a daily basis, and yeah. and at the same time, the, you know, there there's there's ambushes against the police, there's community disdain against police, but ultimately, I think there there needs to be open dialogue amongst community. And really just the realities of, of law enforcement, because oftentimes the, the, the impact, so going back to that Freudian quote, yeah. the impact of the unresolved natural emotions from, from policing leaks into their own insight and their capability of engaging others in the same way. To rationalize, yes. You, you, so so they, they don't even know that this is impacting them. So, so that is, 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 is a profound thing, is well, re- receiving in a non-defensive way communicative dialogue between community and law enforcement can, can, can start to heal. Sounds like communication is everything. That's what I keep hearing as you're talking. And a lot of times um, as we go through things, tongue-tied, as we go through things, the processing part, you know, a lot of times is the difficult part. Within your particular position, what is a way that you're able to, if you can share it with us, mm-hmm. that you really have an individual that has to see you, job is on the line, you almost have to say, listen, it's not looking good. How Can you give us a little bit of an example of what it looks like? Yeah, I have to imagine that would turnaround. be pretty, uh, I think I'm pretty tough, but yeah. that would be pretty traumatic for me. For you, that's what I was thinking. And exactly. so I can't imagine the weight that you must carry each and every day. Like, how, how do you not take 
that with you. Exactly. Well, yeah. I, I, I educate the, the employers that I work with first, and, and I educate them in, in kind of evidence-based practices. I educate them in my own approach. And when I do see an employee, because ultimately when I do a fitness for duty evaluation, my, my, my client is the department. So I don't have wow. to tell the person I'm evaluating that. Someone look, else man, has to share the news. Yeah. But at the same time, I do have space to, to, to really let the, I, I use my interviewing skills to, to let, let the employee really just kind of talk about what they're going through. And if they let go of some of their psychological defenses, they know, you know, at, at the end, they know, well, one, their job is probably not on the line, but two, there is this insight that they, they have all that's aha moment. Yeah, I was thinking aha thinking yeah. How do you develop that trust? Yeah. I mean, to let somebody into my head, it, it takes trust. It's a process. Yeah. It, it, well, to be honest with you, my background, you know, I frequently almost on a daily basis will, will tell folks so that I, see, I, I say, look, man, I, I, I know it's been tough. And, and so why don't you tell me about what brings you in here? And, and then, and, you know, we talk about it and I, I just have developed a, a skill. I've done over 8,000 evaluations. Eight, in my wow. professional so, and, yeah. and so, it, you know, so I wow. also do. You are a professional's professional. I, I, <laughs> I, no, I refer to him as you're the expert. You're expert. the expert. Yeah, expert, <laughs> expert, go. expert yeah. <laughs> I go to a professional, the professional, hey, Dr. Yeah. Greg, we need some help. <laughs> So, you know, I've, I've developed certain skills um, certain to. You to have ninja skills, right, Orn? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> No, I was, you know, um, when you say experience, I'll tell you something to, to be able to use it, you know, from other fields that you've been in, I can only imagine it's a plus. Has it ever been an opportunity? Has it ever been an experience that you've had that you didn't know what to do? Yeah. Now, have actually, you ever read a ball and like, I like, don't know uh, the answer on this one. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, to be honest with you, I think we all kind of are in that uh, what do I do yes. situation uh, almost on a daily basis too. That, the, the, That's the, life, the, right? The, the, that is Life's life. tough, man. Life's I haven't tough. figured this thing out yet. And, and really the key is just to it's kind of owning up, you know, you know, our own feelings and experiences. But and us and, men aren't very good at sharing how we feel. Yeah. And, We're not good communicators. We, it's yes, no. Not. Yes, yeah. no. <laughs> and How you doing, George? Yeah, good, you. <laughs> But to answer the question, man, so when I did my pre-doctoral internship, mm -hmm. believe it or not, it was in the, it was with the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. Wow. And so it was a very unusual dynamic because here therapy is, is typically defined by authenticity and, and, you know, being genuine and such. And I was able to do that. I really appreciated a lot of the influences and there, there, are, there are much less criminals than there are offenders, and situations lead to, to kind of certain decisions amongst offenders, but there are, there are certainly criminals out there, too. That's a great point uh, you make. Yeah. But I couldn't tell them my background, because if I would tell someone working in, in a you know, medium security prison that, hey, you know what, I'm a former police, and, and we're doing some sex offender group treatment here, um, I'm going to lose all credibility and maybe even some safety. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. so it, it, it was, uh, it was like, well, what do I do? What do I do? How, do, <laughs> how do I, what do I, so yeah. that becomes challenging I mean, in your, in your field or, or fields. Um, how do you deal with them all so independently? I mean, going from talking to an employee to, to now talking to first responders and in the past, you know, talking to people that are dealing with inmates. It, it I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I, Every psychologist. I mean, because you're not person. 65 or 70. Like, exactly. You're a young buck. How have you done this? So, I mean, I think everyone kind of goes through, through uh, you know, the hills and valleys, right? Very so, true. so, so every, life is tough and life impacts folks. And luckily, psychologists are equipped with, with particular insights and kind of uh, skills and just understanding how they're doing. One of the biggest things that I have not been able to get back into actually since I've uh, returned or to Maryland. Uh, from Chicago was uh, really a consistent powerlifting routine. I had a trainer. I was a uh, you, back in, in, Illinois, in Illinois. I was super big into lifting weights, and and it actually uh, fueled my mental health. But since I've been back here, it in, kept you Maryland, strong. It well, it, it kept both emotionally and physically. So, yeah. so working out and and exercise, particularly rigorous high intensity exercise fundamental in terms of uh you know keeping keeping good balance at least for me but one of the biggest challenges is, is is when you go into a new community is it is a new situation it's anxiety provoking you got to kind of develop your street cred and there i'm going to be honest I mean, you know i sometimes need some of my own medicine because i do have some work imbalance and you know i do kind of check emails yeah <laughs> so it's it's uh you know certainly uh 
a lifelong journey of assuring that you're within your your your, your range of, of of emotional health. Yeah. That's so, right. how long do you typically work with somebody? So, for for therapy, actually, so when I see especially first responders who's kind of gone through all these negative experiences for years and sometimes decades. The, the time frame is, is a little bit longer than, than normal. And, and in fact, and say a little bit longer than normal because if you, let's say an officer involved shooting, you get in, you kind of meet early on after the shooting, you process, you normalize, you educate the, you know, more often than not, those officers are gonna go back to work really quickly. However, if you, if you see someone who's kind of 30 years on the job, just pushed everything down, you know, maybe profoundly overweight and, and also kind of drinking a lot, what, what we need to do is, is we need to meet and unravel how that's impacted lives. Because once you get to that point, you know, the ultimate question is, is who are you? Yeah. And Always how, the question. How, how, yes. how do you find yourself? And that is a big, big risk factor in, in first responders when at the end of one's career and the dedication to the community and to the department 30 years on the job you're now you know 55 60 years old and then all of a sudden you step out you may get a gold watch and well what now yeah yeah what's next for me and and that is because you've now brought with you life and, and everything that's happened every eight seven thousand nine hundred ninety nine cases and then that eight thousand yeah. and then that's your last day yep and and, and how do you, you just do? turn that off you you can't and it's impossible to decompress yeah so it so you, you initially post-retirement for first responders it's a good thing right but like all right i got some time off i'm gonna go take some vacations i'm gonna go kind of do what i want to do a month or, or, or two after that, you know, life gets boring because you're used to working so used to, 60 hours a week. Yeah. You're used to, to kind of being involved. And, and it it is difficult finding meaning with that such an acute change. That's amazing. You say meaning. Um, are they ever able to talk to you, come back and meet with you? So so for a fitness for duty evaluation, absolutely. Okay. And, and absolutely, because ultimately my, my client is the, the department or the employer so to say, hey, you know what? This person is stable. This person has no compromise, what we call essential job functions. Okay. Or legally, it's called business necessity. So I kind of see them. And it's usually a super positive experience. Awesome. And and so when That's I great. first see them, you know, they're, they're really anxious. They're shaking. They, they kind of want their jobs. But four or five months down the road after they get some some good treatment some good intervention they come in they be like man i'm ready to go back i, I you know I, I learned this i learned this about myself i'm doing this and it's like it's like a positive experience because that's the advocacy that refreshment you know, yeah be, because you know yeah. i met this individual in, in a negative context and now now they're back and now the department is served the community is served this individual is served and you may not even realize it but that's that's the way i conceptualize yeah. it so now tell me the spouses of first responders what do they have to experience what do they live with so it, it's pretty tough right i mean so dependent on the department long shift shift work uh, working on holidays, yeah. not knowing what's going on, kind of on, on the job, especially when, when there's kind of heightened violence directed towards the police. It, it, is a, it can be very, very challenging. And then, of course, you also have the, the examples of individuals in the community who, who really, I don't want to use the term, can be politically correct, like police friendly, yeah. but if, if they have disdain towards the police, you know, that kind of impacts social network and, and there's some, some isolation factors going on. And what you find is, is that there's a lot of groups that, that develop among spouses of first responders. Yeah. And, and Which is a plus, I would say is a plus, right? It, it, it is a plus for support, but also it, it is a, it's still a loss. It is. It, you know, be, that is the, so it, true. It, any kind of change is loss. Yeah. yeah. And any kind of change is stress. Yeah. So it's it, a new day for them. It's, well, today is different from yesterday. From yesterday I've always yeah. done. Yeah. And so do you see any differences in treating uh, let's say law enforcement police officers and say firefighters or even paramedics well the the experience of firefighter if you just go ask uh, you know john and jay doe out in the community hey uh -huh. what do you think about the police and then you ask them the same question well, what do you think about a firefighter totally different you're going to get possibly some some different perspectives yeah. and, and and you know the the running joke is is you know that that firefighters you know get a lot of praise and and police officers you know when when even if you're obeying the law and you see those red and blue sirens turn on behind you you experience anxiety. Yeah. When you come in contact with law enforcement, it is generally for something negative. And when you come in contact with a firefighter or a paramedic, it's usually for something a little bit more positive, right? So, so true. So yeah, true. so now talking about the world of uh, pharmaceuticals or prescriptions, 
Do you find that in the world of law enforcement, that is something where, again, we all have something we've locked inside and something we deal with. Do you find it's more acceptable now for somebody to, to be prescribed something to take off the edge and, and take it and say, ah, oh, I can finally get my peace back? Well, I, 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 if, if you're having an emotional reaction because of an experience, because, you know, there, there's endogenous and exogenous factors. If there's an exogenous factor, an external factor that's impacting the emotion, I, I'm actually against it. You know, if it's something for you to process through, well, you don't go to your general practitioner who don't may, put a bandaid on it. Well, you don't put a bandaid on it. Yeah. You don't go to someone that doesn't really know what they're doing in terms. And of I'm sure you get many of those cases where you see they're taking one, two, three, four, five different things, and probably causing a whole new set of problems yeah. for them. All, all dependency the time. even all, all the time and then uh, with men a lot of self-worth issues because a lot of antidepressant medication for example has sexual side effects yes. there's the erectile dysfunction issues and and so if you go through a bad experience and then you go to your gp your general practitioner for meds and then all of a sudden uh you know you you are just taking the meds to cope yeah how is that different than taking alcohol or cocaine it's, or, so it's, or it, it is much very difference. similar they're, yeah. they're both they're both making you forget what's around yeah. you. And it's unresolved, right? Yeah. I, I use the Numbing analogy. It, but it's still there. And, and not to take too much time on it, but uh, you know, I use the analogy of a box truck, right? And, and, and so say the, the adverse experience is, is, is uh, you know, in a box. It's a, there is a can of oil that is slightly leaking, mm -hmm. right? That box truck is driving throughout life and filled, the truck is filled with other boxes. You know, eventually, that, uh, that that oil kind of seeps through the box and it it starts contaminating other boxes. Yeah. And, he, and, and unresolved emotions, that's what happens. If you Great don't analogy. process through it, and, and, and it's difficult to clean off, it right? Because oil yeah. stains it does. last a long time. Sure does. And, and so if you get really far off with unresolved emotions, what happens is, is the, Say the impact spreads. is long. Yeah. yeah, the impact... Yeah, the impact is... Ex so do you find that any more, uh, let's say, any certain areas of the country seem to be more adept to certain types of treatment? I, mean, I, I don't really have a, you know, a, a comment on that. I, I can say that when different areas in the country, especially with the first responders, where there are practitioners who are trained in and culturally competent in working with first responders, we, we find that there are more resources, right? So California, for example, does have a lot of excellent police psychologists. They have a lot of excellent treatment providers and training curriculum and, and opportunities. Chicago and Illinois is the same way. You know, out here on the East Coast, you know, New York may have a few, but I'm I, certainly not like, yeah. like they, they, they have in, in California. Why would you say that would, you know, is that way? It's, it's just programs. I mean, it, okay. it, it is academia. It's, from the, gotcha. and, and yeah. it's, it's relationships. I mean, as yeah. you can see from the outsider's perspective, yeah. it, it is quite fascinating to know really what is. they deal with and, yeah. and what they take home and, and then what we expect of them. You know, everyone has, if you live in a townhome community or uh, even a condo community, everyone knows, oh, there's a, there's a police officer that's a couple doors down. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen in my own life is typically they keep to themselves. And, and because, just imagine that, even when you're home, you're still the cop. You're still the cop. Wherever you are, you're, you're the cop. So, so you lose yourself, and that's the So issue. how do you find yourself again? Because before you became a police officer, you were a friend, you were, a person, you, you yeah. were in someone's family, you were yeah. that person. You, you were in many ways a different kind of normal, but, but you were different than who you are now. And, and that's why how do they, I, and I assume they probably want to go back to who they were. Can they ever go back to who they were? Well, we can never, we never go back. We never go back from, from our experiences. We, we always move forward, we always change. And, and, and so it's, th think of it like a, a field. And, and I, I say this analogy or this metaphor often, you know, the field is untraveled. And then you travel kind of one path through that field and really doesn't make a kind of a definitive path. Mm -hmm. But then you turn around and you travel the same path. And you do that again and again, 10, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 times. And whenever you approach that field, you, you naturally are drawn Towards that path. To that path, yeah. yeah. And, th and that metaphor is really relevant to a variety of things, from identity. If you have only one path of identity, well, that's very problematic because eventually when you no longer can take that path and there's a block, how do you get across the field? And it, it can be treacherous and, and, and scary. Yeah. But it also really relates to what I call these negative thoughts. Yeah. And I actually use this analogy quite often to, to nip negative thoughts in the bud simply because... 
if we have a, a, a defined path when we approach a situation, when we see ourselves in a particular way, when we see others as particularly threatening, what happens is, is it, it is a, a, a very narrow view yeah. of, of options and choices. And oftentimes we are blinded about the, the options that we actually have and the choices that we can make. So, so therapy for first responders tends to be more long-term, especially longer-term career, largely because there, there's a, a lot more to process. Yeah. So now within the, the, the first responder community, when there are others that are dealing with the same issues of you as, as you are, do they get empathy from their, from their, uh, their I would say, fellow partners or, or from the others around them? Or are they expect to say, get over it? Well, I think it depends if you're the old guard or the new guard, right? Because I think that there's some really bad leadership now that, that actually, uh, in, in a lot of departments internationally, that says, you know, uh, you know suck it up, buttercup, right? And, and, and yeah. that is not a good approach. But there are other folks who have gone through the, the same experiences and can, can be empathetic. It really depends on the dynamic. But I, I can honestly say one of the factors that have actually fueled my success as being a psychologist, particularly an intervention psychologist, has, has been, I, I get it. And because I think all of us- You can relate. Yeah, that's I, it right there. Yeah. You get it, yeah. Yeah, well, at, yeah, and it's a, we talk about this in the show quite a bit, yeah. that we don't relate to people on our strengths. We re relate to people on our weaknesses. On our weaknesses yeah. I mean, you live in a world where you hear, the, you, you hear the worst of people. You get to hear the things that keep them up at night, the things that take their peace away. And for some of them, make them say, I want to end it all. Yeah. And, and, and when you know, because and that's the easiest part, is, is everyone, when they look at themselves, has never avoided a negative feeling. Everyone has gone through hills and valleys. Very true. Everyone has experienced negative emotions. And yeah. when you can wipe yourself clean of those defenses, acknowledge those emotions, it's powerful. And then to look into a hardcore first responder and ask them, man, when's the last time you actually had thoughts of killing yourself? And, 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 and say it, by it, the way, it takes a lot of courage. I talked about this, and this is in the book, where I was 19 and I reached that spot and said, I need to talk to somebody. And, yeah. and it was looked down upon, at least in my own mind. And to realize that it's one of the greatest things I could have ever done to say, when you are at your weakest, there are others at their strongest. So true. A absolutely. And the fact that it is not as uncommon as everyone thinks. That is to say, everyone feels negative emotions. So when you normalize it, you open the door to acknowledge it. And so when you, when you can self-reflect and identify your own emotional pains, regardless of context, what happens is that, that that facilitates a dynamic in therapy of, of saying that, hey, you know what, um, I get it, and, and, and it's okay, yeah. and you're not alone in this process. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, opiates are causing uh, quite a scene, uh, not yeah. just uh, in this state, but every single state around us and all around the world, uh, to the point where even one of our sponsors, the reason they went into this was that we all have moments in our life where we need help. Mm -hmm. We all have moments in our life where it's not enough to just keep doing it the same way over and over again. So talking about the, the opiate crisis and talking about how you can help somebody that's going through these moments, the last thing to leave a person, the last thing to, to leave is hope. What sort of advice can you give to people around the world to keep them from getting to that place where all hope is lost? Well, that there's support out there, that, that there, there are folks out there that, that know what they're doing, that are there unconditionally for support and for help. And when we talk about a physiological dependency, such as like an opiate addiction, it is, it is very, very difficult to do on your own. And it's courageous to, to reach out. It, it really reflects one's integrity to yeah. say, you know what, I need to lean on someone. And when you take those blinders away and look down that field and actually see all the hands reaching out, and the choices that you can make to, yeah. to make a positive change, man, that's where the goosebumps come from. I can imagine. We, we yeah. all put blinders to our lives and, and, and limits to, to what we can really do. But when those blinders are lifted- You see so we, much clearer. We see so much clearer and yeah. we seek so much more support than, than perhaps we, we saw before. So yeah. I always say the support is always there. You know, are we just choosing are to we look ready? the right direction? Uh, have you, yeah. you know, I look at my own life and and for many years, I wasn't ready. I, I, for me, I, I thought, well, I'm quite normal. And based upon what I went through, well, I think I've done quite well. Yeah. But now what happens is as you get older and you look back and now I'm 35, I go, well, I have 35 years behind me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have from my earliest memories to now, 
And now what will I do with the rest of my life? We yeah. talk about legacy. And mm -hmm. I look at the legacy that you are leaving behind and the legacy you're creating for future generations. What for you has been one of the greatest moments in your career? Well, See, thus far. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to say back in Chicago was my role that I took in, in academia. So I have hundreds of, of uh, former students, some that may even be listening. I actually haven't sent it out to them yet, but... but uh, This will be a good treat. Yeah. But they, they Hi, everybody. Are, yeah. <laughs> so they are my legacy. Um, they, wow. beautiful. They, I was able to have academic freedom and, and talk how I talk and teach how I that teach. That is amazing. And I know I touched many lives. Many of the master's level students who matriculated into doctoral programs. There are a good five or six actually out here on the East Coast. Once they become licensed, I hope to continue to... To recruit them to, to come in to to uh, you know work with yeah. you know with first responders and and really it is our responsibility to mentor the next generation and and so that is is really one of my legacies and then of course the understanding that having one meaningful impact on one individual that's yeah. actually can have a a, a, a ripple effect it and, sure does. and impact so many other lives and I have the privilege of doing that about 800 times a year amazing wow. Do you plan on getting back into teaching? I, you know, I, I would like to at, at, at some point, and I've, I've looked at some of the schools. There, there are a lot of excellent local schools in, in, in which I, I would uh, really be, be privileged to contribute to. And, you know, when, when I came here, I came here to take over business. Gotcha. And I came here to really be the, the next face of, of uh, my firm. And, and uh, you know, I'm really focused on that. And after perhaps I trained some, some, some younger bucks yeah. or does to, to kind of come in and, and uh, you know, really do the high caliber work that we gotcha. do, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much focused so on that. Pass the baton yep. then, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so awesome. one of the quotes that for me inspired me on my journey is one that when I look at you and I hear the passion in your voice, that for me, this becomes probably one of the most powerful quotes of all time. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, then the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what would started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. That for me is one of the most powerful quotes of all time. And I hear your heart for first responders. It's so that them and their future generations can live in a world far better than we have today because they were responsible for helping to make it a better world. It is so easy true. for us to judge law enforcement, to say what we would have done different, much like politics. If I was the president of the United States, half the people in this room, and there's eight of them, would say, I disagree with you. I don't like the decision you just made, but heavy is the head that wears that crown. And these first responders, they need our respect, even when they're at their worst, Yes, because they give us the best of them. And as Dr. Craig said, they go home and they take everything back. And as Dr. Craig takes 8,000 cases with him, I'm gonna ask Dr. Craig one last question for the show. Who is the toughest person you know? Other than you. Because you're one tough guy, <laughs> you're man. definitely a tough guy. You carry the weight of me and everybody else on your shoulders. Sure Who keeps that. you from falling over? Uh, I, I, every king has a queen. So, so, wow. so my, my, every, every king but, has a queen. Like my, my wife uh, is, is also a psychologist, uh, Dr. Corrali Castro, and she also does a lot of work. Well, one day, uh, if she would honor us, we would love to hear the perspective of, that would be amazing. you live with the expert's expert, and is he really as good as he is behind the scenes with, with the relationship? And I'd love to hear her talk about. She calls me out on a <laughs> daily so basis. And, and You're that, a human, man. And, and, and that You're is, like me. We're all a bunch of weirdos just trying to figure exactly this thing out. Right. Keeping it real. Always. Iron sharpening iron at home. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right, guys. Well, as we start to go towards the end of the segment, last words uh, you have for us, Dr. Craig? I, I, I just want all listeners to know that we all experience pain. We all experience uh, tough situations. And when you look out and when you take off those blinders, there are a lot of good folks out there ready and willing to help you. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's and beautiful, or, man. That was This that was, was a lot to take in. I, I tell is. you what, it tells me that I complain about things that really don't matter. I've been thinking about that I don't have to go evening. home saying I fired a gun. Exactly. I, had to, I was in a car following somebody yeah. in a police chase. Uh, boy, I get to go home to 
I had some stress. Somebody called me about an insurance problem. Exactly. Or, right. or there's a guest coming on the show. And, and so what they deal with and the weights that they carry, I feel that we should do more to help them. And with that, I'd like to talk about, again, our sponsor, the POI Institute. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions and addictions come in many forms. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. Or check their website, P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-A-G-A-I-N-E.com. And be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. Now, as we transition towards the end, the lingering effects of trauma can be powerful, as we've discussed with our special guest today, Dr. Craig. I have personally felt these effects. There's no question that my sister, Tennille, and I had ongoing battles, stress, post-traumatic stress. That's what happens when you're a little kid and your mother disappears and your father ends up in prison and you, by default, become ensnared in the foster care system. It happened to Tennille and me. Along the way, Tennille and I saw and experienced things that kids should never confront. In the United States today, there's over 430,000 children in foster care. You may not even know this, but the month of May is Foster Care Awareness Month. That we give others more respect than we give our own children that are living in foster care at no fault of their own. Along the way, we saw things. And yet, as an adult, I have decisions to make. That I cannot hide behind what happened. I can blame, I can say if I could have done it different, but at the end of the day, you are who you are. You cannot run from it, but you have a decision to make. That's either you can lay down and quit and give up, or you can fight back. When I was four, for instance, I was bouncing around in the front seat of a truck that my dad was driving, and we were trying to elude dozens of police, led by Officer Godnick, who were chasing us for an extended time. The car chase ended when my dad drove the truck over an embankment, and after sailing through the air, the truck slammed into the ground. My dad swooped in with his arms and tried to escape by foot. He knew I needed medical attention. I was bleeding profusely as a result of hitting my head against the front window or dashboard of the truck and bit down on my tongue during the crash landing. That dramatic episode ended when a countless number of police swarmed around my dad and me with their guns drawn. They would not back down. They were there and they were going to stop this man. Next came foster care. Tennille and I went from home to home. Sometimes we were together. Other times we were assigned separate homes. We were two dysfunctional children. When we were together at home, at one home, I inadvertently opened or closed a door too hard, which damaged the wall. Tennille tried to intervene on behalf of me. It was to no avail. The punishment was extreme. After two years in foster care, our mother, seemingly out of the blue, placed a claim on us with the relevant state agency on November 11, 1988. She retrieved us like lost luggage. I really didn't know her. I was nearly six, and I hadn't seen her for just about four years. She said she was my mother. So at the time, I said okay. Tennille and I were off to Maryland to live with her and her live-in boyfriend and their 17-month-old child. We encountered a household governed by an, an absolute adherence to evangelical Christianity. Our mother and her boyfriend, a man who recently became ordained as a pastor, were running a church. They had rules of the church, and they even had more rules at home. Rules such as no non-Christian friends, or even non-Christian music. How does one find somebody to know they are Christian or non-Christian? Who defines that? And that is the challenge we face as parents. What do we believe and why do we believe it? We weren't allowed to watch Disney programs back then on TV, but we did regularly watch videos about the rapture. When Jesus Christ would return and the world would end in an apocalypse, 
It's the things of science fiction. If you didn't believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. You'll be left behind as only true believers get to go to heaven. There's even been Hollywood blockbuster movies based on this very same concept. The videos depicted people about to be murdered on the spot in the name of salvation. Naturally, Tennille and I had consistent nightmares. As for being left behind, it was plausible. We had already been left behind back in, children, back in California as children. Why wouldn't it happen again? All through our youth, our mother would tell us that if we didn't act in the way we were expected, we may be shipped off out of the house because we were causing too many problems like our father did. She'd regularly tell Tanil and I that the devil was winning the fight for souls. So I'm going to hell, my sister would ask. Well, that's where you're headed if you don't change. You're going to end up in hell for all eternity. To this day, I am labeled as the Antichrist. When I'd ask her why she left us in foster care for so long, she'd say something like, how dare you? How dare you question me? You want to blame someone, blame God. God told me to do it. If I stayed in California, I could have been dead from your father. You're just like him. I'm sorry to say. Then she'd add something akin to, I tell girls to be careful when you marry. The DNA from that person is going to get into you and affect any children you have. This was the type of mothering I've known. Many of you out there around the world have similar stories. Stories more painful than mine. Stories of abuse and neglect and trauma and worry. Some of you are the kids of police officers. Some of you are the, the kids of firefighters. Some of you are wishing and asking, why can't it be better? And I understand what it's like to face these things. But you've got to stand up and you've got to fight back. You need to get the help you deserve. Get the help you need. Life will never give you what you want. It will give you what you deserve. And that is a purpose. We got to hear tonight from Dr. Craig, a man with a purpose, who says, to the end, I will give you all I have. Because all it takes is all you got. It's been great to talk about such an important topic that, as you can hear from me, such passion with Dr. Craig. I know that's a lot to take in. Oren, any comments? Oh, man, it, it's going to be a lot of processing, but I'm, you know, uh, looking forward to it. I really am. You know, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, indeed. It's a pleasure. So that wraps up our show for this evening. I'd like to thank our special guest again, Dr. Craig, for sharing his insight with us. Also, thank you, Oren, for this podcast. Thanks to you, our amazing audience, for making the Life Stuff podcast one of the most relevant and fastest growing shows around. Also, special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life Stuff, Cheap Rider, and my Sherpa. Also to our sponsor, George Beck from the POI Institute. We talked about it earlier. If you are going through trauma right now, if you have faced something, if there is a demon living inside of you and you've been called the Antichrist, or if you are going to church and you believe you're good with God, it does not matter. Everyone has something that they've locked inside. Some devil, some fear, some pain, some worry, some anxiety. One of our new shows starting is going to be called Life's Tough, but athletes are tougher with Marcus Austin. I'm so excited for this new podcast that will be starting. This podcast is going to change the world because around the world, people like you, people like me are hurting and they need help and they need someone to tell them, I understand. There's not a week that goes by in my life that I don't shed a tear. It is very normal to reach the spot where you say, I need help. I need to talk to somebody. I have a Pastor Ed in my life. Pastor Ed Lockmiller, please listen to episode one. This was the man that got me through it, the man that I lean on. Now, men like me, we lean on Craig. I don't have the courage. I did not join law enforcement. I did not become a paramedic. I didn't become a firefighter. And so I thank you for what you are doing for these brave men and women that have donated, literally donated their lives. They will never be the same, but to me, they will always be heroes. Thank you again to our amazing audience. Thank you again, Gerald. Thank you again to our team. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. Each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. It's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience to the person who lived through domestic abuse, like my mother. That story is just as devastating as any other. 
I ask you to use your story to give others hope. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. With truth comes honesty. At that point, you're ready to heal. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community or in your community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance when that person either chooses and yes, chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person says, I'm done and finds the strength to transcend it and get up. Please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestuff.com. That's L-I-F-E-S. T-O-U-G-H dot com. And be sure to join us every week, same time, same place, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. So for Dustin Planholt, Orrin Stewart, Dr. Doug Craig, and the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Planholt signing off. Remember, life's tough, but Dr. Craig's wife is tougher. <laughs> <laughs>